We all know where our blessings come from. And for me, that's from God. And, and no matter how many fans come out or, or 100,000 people are cheering, I know that my strength and my ability is from Him. I never really thought my struggles were something that it was just on me. I always felt like um, I had a, a hard heart towards God and just, just resisted it in every way you could. And um, all the failures and all the tough times growing up and, and a single parent home and, and just a, a rough childhood, all those things led me to resist God. And, and finally, when I opened my heart to Him and I, I met my wife, that was really when I knew that God had a plan for me and that He, um, he was what I needed. Really, God just he didn't resist me. He, he took me in his arms and just showed me what life is all about and, and really what I'm here to, on earth to do, and that's to live for him. Every decision I make, I try to make it for God and, and, and use the right judgment to, to do so. Obviously, I, I make mistakes. I still fail every day, but I know through him and his grace that I can have everlasting life. And, I, uh, I walk with him every day, I talk to him, it's, it's like he's my friend. Well, my personal relationship with Jesus is, is personal, that's exactly what it is. I mean, uh, God's blessed me in so many ways in my family, and I've just learned so much with him. And having life without him and, and really resisting him in my life, and now to a point in my life where he's so involved in it, everything I do is that relationship with him, that's what my life's about. And, I really want to spread the word of Jesus and, and know the impact that he has. So without Jesus, I'm nobody. Definitely humbled by him and, and my relationship with him. I'm Jason Witten, and I am second. And all God's people said, as I watched that, I thought to myself, well, uh, maybe there is hope for the Dallas Cowboys after all. <laughs> but you know who would be excited about Jason Witten's testimony? King David would. In fact, I think if King David were here today and heard this, he would say, Jason Witten gets it. He understands the purpose for why he has been forgiven. Say, so let me ask, do I understand that? Do you understand that? Uh, today, we're going to look at a very simple principle in God's Word. It is the reason why we have been forgiven. And I wonder if you would just uh, affirm this together with me. Let's state it together, all right? God forgives us to show to others the fruit of a forgiven life. That's the purpose why we've been saved. God forgives us so that we might show to others the fruit of a forgiven life. Let me ask you today and myself, what kind of fruit is that? What is the fruit of a forgiven life? Well, David shows us. Now, today we are coming to the final section of Psalm 51. And as we come to this final section, it is really about uh, forgiveness and fruitfulness. And what we discover is God's purpose for us 
and why He has forgiven us and brought us into a relationship with Him. Would you take your Bibles and open with me to Psalm 51? Uh, Make your way down to verse 13. And let me read for you from that verse to the end of the psalm. And you pick out as we read, what are the fruits of a forgiven life? Look what David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. By the way, David is aware. Uriah is dead because he put a hit out on him. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray for a moment. Father, Thank you that for the sake of Jesus Christ and what he has done, that we have full and complete forgiveness in him. But teach us, Lord, today that that forgiveness does not end with us. The goal is not even simply to get us to heaven. It is to bring us into fellowship with the living God, And then out of that fellowship to glorify that God by exhibiting the fruits of His work in our life to those around us. Thank you that David understood that, that he wrote it down for us. And help us now to emulate Him. Thank you and praise you for Jesus' sake. Amen. As we look at what David says about the fruits of a forgiven life, the first thing we notice is that forgiven people want to witness. David says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. What David is basically saying here is that he wants to witness. He wants to win others to the Lord. Now, normally we do not associate witnessing with the Old Testament, do we? we? We think of that as a New Testament concept, but here it is. Here is all of the elements that are involved in witnessing. If we were to ask, what is effective witnessing? Well, you can't find a better uh, explanation than here in verse 13. Uh, notice, witnessing begins with compassion. That always has to be its starting place. David says in verse 13, he wants to teach transgressors and sinners. Those are very strong terms. Transgressors means rebels against God. Sinners means those who have gone astray. We might call them strays against the Lord. Do you know these are the very same terms that David used of himself? 
Uh, earlier in the psalm, in the first three verses, he asked for forgiveness of his transgressions and his sins. In fact, we have 12 verses of how wrong David was. And after 12 verses of humbling himself, then and only then does he seek to humble us. Isn't that amazing? I learned something very important here. Witnessing is identifying with people. Witnessing is having compassion on others. Um, it's interesting, uh, the, the verb here, I will teach, in the Hebrew Bible, it is in a form known as the cohortative. And when a verb is in the cohortative, what happens is a little letter H is uh, added to the end of the verb, and it changes the emphasis. It gives to the verb a sense of strong intent or determination almost a sense of obligation. David is not simply saying here, I will do this, I will teach others. He is saying, I long to do it. I desire to do this. I want so much, he is saying, for sinners to experience what I have. That is the very, very first step in witnessing. You see, you know how much you have sinned, and you know how much you have been forgiven. And then out of your own gratefulness in love for others, you now want them to experience what you have found. Uh, you know what I've discovered? You find somebody who is effective in witnessing. You will always find somebody who has deep compassion for lost souls. You will always find that. All effective witnessing starts with this deep compassion for others. Notice the second thing that's involved. Secondly, it includes bringing others to conviction. Bringing others to conviction. David says, I will teach transgressors your ways. That is a word in the Old Testament that refers to God's commandments and His teachings of what is right. It's a reference to right conduct. And so it involves the, the standards of the Lord, how He wants us to live and how He wants us to act. Hey, before people can be forgiven, they need to know that they need it, right? Before you can be found, you first have to know that you are lost. And how do people find that out? Well, we have to tell them. We have to tell them. Well, now we can see why compassion is the basis for all true witnessing. Because, you see, apart from love, Bringing people to conviction, it can seem like being harsh. It can seem like we are coming across holier than thou. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody witness like that. I've experienced that. 
And I tell you what, it doesn't work very, very well. But when our witnessing is based in love, then the timing is right. Sometimes the timing has to be right before we talk to people about their sins. And then the approach is right because we are coming to them with a sense of humility. Witnessing really is very much like this. It is, look what I've learned about myself. And it's true about you as well. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians, we are to speak the truth. How? In love. Love is compassion, and truth is conviction. And when you bring those two together, that's what makes powerful witnessing. One of the greatest witnesses in, in the history of the church was, was Charles Spurgeon. He, he loved lost souls. And he had some wonderful things to say about witnessing and sharing the gospel. Uh, look at one of the things he said. I, I love this. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? If Jesus is really precious to us, then we will have compassion for lost people. We will want to share what we have found with them. And then Spurgeon said something else that I, I think is so helpful. We need this today. He said, if you always enjoy sermons, the minister is not a good steward. He is not acting wisely who deals out nothing but sweet. Isn't that good? By the way, don't ever go to a church where all you get is sweets. That will never bring you to the place of conviction. You see, he had this balance. Jesus is precious to me. I can't keep the good news to myself. I must, in compassion, love and care for others. But then he had the balance of conviction. When the approach is right and the time is right, then we have to talk to people about their sins. Now, there's a third part in this process, and the third part is conversion. It is conversion. Notice that David says what will happen is sinners will return to you. You see, once we told people the bad news... Then we can tell them the good news, and David does that. Do you know this word, return here? It comes from the Hebrew word shuv. It is the most common Old Testament verb for conversion. It occurs 1,050 times in the Old Testament. It is the twelfth most used verb in the entire Old Testament. And the prophets were constantly exhorting the wayward people of God, shavu, shavu, Turn ye, turn ye. Though you have sinned, it is possible to be converted. You can turn back to God. That's the good news. Now, whenever I think of conversion, one of the things that helps me is to think of a coin. All of us know that a coin is one coin but it has two sides. It has a heads and it has a tails. 
That's the way conversion is. Conversion is one act, but it has two sides. Notice the two sides here. Uh, The first side is turning from sin. That's repentance. By the way, in our Bibles, whenever we receive repentance, uh, faith is always assumed. Whenever we see faith, repentance is always assumed. It is the two sides of conversion. Now, notice what repentance is. Repentance is basically an about-face. We're going the wrong direction from God, and so He calls out to us about-face. Turn from a life of sin and self-will and turn back to Me. You know what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches when we are converted, there is an initial repentance. I turn from my sin and myself, and I turn to Jesus. But the Bible also teaches that as a Christian, there is a constant repentance. I've been repenting for 40 years since I was saved, because the Lord constantly on a regular basis is telling me, Brian, no, that's not right. You need to turn from that and turn back to me. So there is initial repentance that brings conversion, but there's an ongoing repentance. Then the opposite side of conversion is faith, and that's trusting in Jesus. See, faith is trusting somebody else to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. It is trusting the Savior for His mercy, for His forgiveness, and for the eternal life that He offers. And so you see how it works. There is a compassion for those who do not have what we have in Jesus. When the timing is right and it's approached in love, we can talk to them about their need of Christ because they're sinners. And then we explain the way of conversion. You're turning from your own selfish way, that's repentance, and you're turning to Jesus, trusting Him for eternal life. Do you know what the best day of my life was? The best day of my life was the day I was converted. Do you know what the second best day of my life was? The day that I felt convicted enough to want to be converted. And it all occurred because compassionate people shared with me the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this morning, has this ever happened to you? Have you experienced a conversion? If you have not, if you have not experienced this transformation that comes from uh, turning from yourself and, and trusting in Jesus, you can experience that today. You can experience it today. Uh, By the way, do you know what the third best day of my life was? It was the day I married Ellen, just in case you were wondering. (laughs) You'd have been in trouble if you didn't. Yeah. I want you to notice, as you continue in this psalm, David gives us another fruit of forgiveness. 
Forgiven people want to worship. Forgiven people want to worship. You know, as we look here at what David says in verses 14 to 7, there's a a very important question that we need to ask. What is acceptable worship? By the way, do you not think that the whole subject of worship is one of the most confusing issues in the church today? Don't you? There are all kinds of confusing ideas about what worship is. And so we have to come back to the Word of God and say, what is really involved in worshiping God? And you can't find a better place to answer that question than what David says here in verses 14 to 17. Let's notice what acceptable worship truly is. Notice, acceptable worship deals with sin. Look at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. You know what blood guiltiness is? It is guilt for murder. That's what it is. And David knew the only one who could save him from the guilt of the murder he had participated in was God by forgiving him. Did you notice it is only after God does that that David then says, My tongue will sing of you. Only after he has experienced the cleansing of that sin will he then go and worship. In the Old Testament, certain sins and conditions excluded people from temple worship. Before they could go and and bring offerings and praise to God, they would have to be declared clean by a prophet or by a priest, and then and only then could they go and worship the Lord by offering sacrifices. You know, if I came to your house and tracked mud into your home, and did not offer to clean it up, you'd be offended, wouldn't you? You'd be very, very offended. When we worship God without dealing with our sins, it is like tracking mud into His house. And He is offended. And that's why... David understood that all acceptable worship begins with a heart that wants to be clean. There can never be any kind of acceptable worship by a holy God on the part of people who do not want hearts that are clean. Let me ask you as I ask myself, do you want to have a clean heart? Do you want God to deal with the sins of your life? If we do not, our our worship is offensive to the living God. It is like dragging mud into His presence. Notice, secondly, secondly, David tells us that acceptable worship magnifies God's grace in salvation. 
What David does here is he wants to give God all the glory. Notice how he says that. Verse 14, Oh God, you are the God of my salvation. I want to sing about your righteousness. He says in verse 15, I want to declare your praise. What this tells us is what the very heart of worship is. May I make it plain this morning? Worship is not about my preference, is it? Worship is not about a performance, is it? In fact, you know, we even have songs. We even have songs about, uh, you know, our wrong view of, of worship. We have songs that say, Lord, forgive me for what I've made it. It's not about those things. Those things have their part. But they're not the essence. Uh, tonight, Randy Gilbertson and I will go to the prison. And I'll bring a message to the prisoners and we will participate in worship. How many of you think it is as good as what we do here? Not nearly as well gifted as we are here. It doesn't flow as smoothly as we do here. What we have here in terms of talents and abilities far exceeds what those men over there can do. But do you think tonight as we're there that we will worship God? Yes, we will. Because worship in its essence is about God and what He has done for us. That's what worship is. Do you know, if you look up the word worship in a dictionary, you will find that it comes from an old English word, the word worth Skype. Worth Skype. And the old English word worth means worthy, and Skype means honor or respect, so that worship is giving to somebody who is worthy the respect, honor, and praise that they deserve. That's what worship is. And when we are forgiven, we want to declare how worthy God is for what He has done for us. I've shared with you before, when I was a boy growing up, I was a goof-off. I didn't pay attention in church. I didn't take very many things seriously. In fact, as a ninth grader, when I went into the youth group, the 12th grade senior girls, they wanted to go out of the youth group. That's what I was. And then as a teenager, I was converted. Everything changed. My parents no longer had to coax me to go to church. That was all in the past. I now wanted to worship God and to praise Him for what He had done for me. Everything changed. Look at the third element in worship. Thirdly, acceptable worship offers ourselves as living sacrifices. In the Old Testament, when people went to the temple, they brought sacrifices. Those animal gifts or grain gifts or or wine gifts, showed their love, their devotion, their fellowship with God. But you know what? There was a tendency on, them, on their part to think. There was a tendency to think 
God wants my gifts. And if I give my gifts to God, somehow He will be satisfied. But did you notice what David says in verses 16 and 17? He says, Lord, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. I would bring the sheep, the goats, the rams, but I know you want more. And then he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What David is saying, Lord, I know that the sacrifices you really want are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Do you know what these are? A broken spirit refers to true sorrow for sin. And a contrite heart refers to a humble, submissive spirit. That's what God wants in terms of sacrifices. He wants a a true sorrow for sin, and then He wants as a result of that, because He has cleansed us, a humble and submissive spirit. Do you know what this is here? This is the Romans 12, 1 and 2 of the Old Testament. Uh, let me ask you uh, this morning, just to read with me, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Because these verses are describing for us what true worship is. Would you join me? Let's read them together. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That is the best definition of worship I know in the Bible. Worship is thanking God for His mercies. And because those mercies have led us to repentance and we have received cleansing, now we offer our lives to Him as a living sacrifice, seeking to be renewed and live for Him day by day. And that is the very, very essence of worship. Worship is offering ourselves to God. Do you know what the tendency uh, of us is? To do very much what the Israelites in the Old Testament did. For example, this Bible here could represent my talents, my gifts as a teacher of God's Word. And I can give my talents to God and and say, There, Lord, I, I offer to you my talents. But God says in His Word, If I don't offer myself to Him first, my sermons that I preach mean nothing to Him without a heart that has not been given to Him. I could reach into my uh, pocket and pull out my wallet, and this wallet could represent our treasure. 
And I could offer my treasure on the altar to God. Here, Lord, I will give you my money. But God says that money, it's, it's a stench in His nostrils. If it does not come from a heart that is truly offered myself to Him. I could take off my watch this morning and say, Well, Lord, maybe you'll be satisfied with my time. I'll be very busy around the church and, and I'll do many, many things for you. I'll give you my time. And God says, No. Your time will only be valuable to me when it comes from a heart that is humble and submissive before me, that has offered itself to me as a living sacrifice. You see, God wants us to lay ourselves on the altar through repentance. Then when cleansing has come, we rejoice in it. And then out of cleansing comes renewal of life as we seek to live daily for our Lord. That is true worship. And when that's right, the sermon will be right, the time will be right, and the money will be right. You see, forgiven people, they want to worship. There's one final fruit in this chapter. Let me close with it. Forgiven people want to rebuild walls. Forgiven people want to rebuild walls. Look at what he says in verse 18. Do good to Zion in your pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. In the ancient world, walls were to protect a city from enemy attack. Do you know at this time when David wrote Psalm 51, the walls were not broken down around Jerusalem? He cannot then be referring to physical walls. He must be referring to spiritual and moral walls. That's what he must be talking about. Rebuilding the spiritual and moral walls that have been broken as a result of sin. Pastor Ray Stedman, who is now with the Lord, preached a sermon on this passage entitled, How to Handle a Bad Conscience. Listen to what he says. As the king, David has caused his whole nation to be in jeopardy because of his sin. Do you know that every person is a king over a kingdom? Each one of us today, we are a king over a kingdom. Each one holds a certain area of influence. Our family, our friends, our loved ones are in a sense a kingdom over which we have much influence as a king. What happens to your kingdom when sin reigns unchallenged in your life? It falls apart. You know that, do you not? But God offers to restore the kingdom, to build it up again, 
to make it real this time, to heal the relationships and build them on a right basis. See, all forgiven people want to do that. They want to rebuild the the walls of their lives and, and their kingdom that has been damaged by sin. The last time we were at the prison, a a man said, I'm trying to restore my relationship with my son. He said, "Would would you pray for me? And then he said, as I was thinking about that, he said, I I realized I hadn't spoken to my own father in two years. And he said, I understood if if I was going to ask my son to be restored to me, that I had to reach out and try to restore my relationship with my father. For the first time in two years, He called his father on the phone. He said to us, it went well. And before he hung up, that father said to his son in prison, I'm glad you called, son. Now, I don't know where that prisoner is at with the Lord, but I know this. I know people that have tasted the forgiveness of God in their life. They want to rebuild the walls that have been broken. Some time ago, I I wrote down a prayer that calls on God to help me do this very thing in my life. And I want you today just to pray the prayer with me. If you are a forgiven person, it is the way in which you want the Lord to work in your life because of what He's done for you. As we prepare to come around the table of the Lord and and to worship our Savior, let this be the prayer of our hearts. Would you join me and let's pray it together. O Heavenly Father, rebuild the walls of my faithfulness, my inner person, my godliness, my loving kindness, my prayer life, my zeal for your holy name my love for souls, my care for the family of God. May I rebuild the walls that I have broken with others. May I be a strong tower for my spouse and children to run unto. In Jesus' name, amen. Bow with me, would you? Lord, today, hear our prayers. Draw us into that kind of fruitful life 
that you have forgiven us for. Lord, many of us today are are angry about how things are going in our country. We find ourselves depressed and discouraged. But we also, Lord, recognize that have we not been forgiven, we would be doing exactly what everyone around us is. And may we have compassion on the lost so that we can, can share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. That alone can bring them to conversion and turn our country around. Lord, help us today to understand what true worship is all about. Help us to offer our lives as living sacrifices and to do that on a daily basis, knowing that when we do, all the gifts that we now bring to you will find their right place. Lord, some of us have great awareness of how we have broken down the walls of the little kingdom that we inhabit and how there are repairs that you would want us to make. And I pray, O God, today that you would help us to take steps to do that. Thank you that there is blessing in obedience. Sometimes we do not see the immediate fruits of it. But Lord, we know that you have promised to bless when we will obey, no matter how late it may seem. We love you today. We're so thankful for what you have done for us and what you are doing in us, through us, to those around us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.